Welcome to Let's Talk Governance, a podcast to support regional West Australian non-for-profit groups to lead and steer their activities with high impact, confidence and compliance. The podcast is brought to you by the Grower Group Alliance and made possible with the generous support of podcast sponsor, the CBH Group. Your host is Callista Bolton of the Grower Group Alliance and our expert guest is renowned governance instructor, Peter Fitzpatrick. The Grower Group Alliance is a WA statewide network of around 60 farmer-led grower groups that are all run with volunteer committees. Established by grower groups for grower groups almost 20 years ago, today member groups extend from Kununurra in the northwest all the way down to Esperance in the southeast. Across the network, the groups have a diverse collective membership of around 4,000 farm enterprises, operating in all sectors of the agriculture industry at all different levels of scale and purpose. Hi everyone and welcome to our Let's Talk Governance podcast. My name is Callista Bolton. I work with the Grower Group Alliance in the role of Stakeholder and Communications Manager. Let me introduce our guest governance expert, Peter Fitzpatrick, who will be delivering all the technical content for this six-episode series. Peter is a well-known West Australian governance instructor. Peter has quite the resume, but for the context of this podcast, let's focus on his governance work. Peter is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and has an advanced diploma in company directorship. He is currently a director of six boards and chairperson of four, which are a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit organisations. Peter is currently a teaching instructor for the Australian Institute of Company Directors course and consults privately, offering governance, consulting and training workshops. Well, welcome to episode five and welcome back, Peter. What part of governance are we exploring today? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, strategy and risk um, responsibilities for developing strategy and uh, uh, the board's role in, in both strategy and risk. This is normally a whole day of, uh, of facilitation for me on the company director's course, so nice one, Callista. You've got me doing it in 15 <laughs> minutes, so that should be. So here we go. Um, the first thing probably just of interest to people uh, is the word strategy is uh, – is two and a half thousand years old. It comes from the Greek word strategos, which meant a military general in 450 BC. And by about 300 BC, it had become known as a system for uh, strategies for global governance, which was uh, when the Greeks were in full power in those times. And the word risk comes from the Italian word, which is a 17th century word, riskiari, which is to risk or to dare. Or the French word uh, which is probably mid-19th century first uh, used, is risque, which is to risk or to shock. The modern definition of strategy then, just so people understand where we're coming from here, is, is the way organisations make goal-directed decisions. So you've got to have a goal in mind and you direct decisions that way. For taking action, most important, strategy is all about doing stuff rather than talking about stuff. Then they've got to use the capability and resources that they've got to match those with the opportunities and threats that are in their in their operating environment. Opportunities being those things that, that you can take advantage of, threats are those things that you need to be wary of and, and have a capacity to deal with, hence a risk management plan. Opportunities and threats are external, whereas strengths and weaknesses, say in a SWOT analysis, are internal. 
So turning then to strategy. Oh, before I do that, I've got a, another modern definition of strategy. You wouldn't believe where this one comes from. It comes from Bon Jovi. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and Bon Jovi's, and I think it's quite a nice little definition, actually. He says, map out your future, but do it in pencil, because the road ahead is as long as you want to make it, but make it worth the trip. Isn't that nice? I think that's quite a... And you may need to change You may need to change. So, so there's quite a lot Don't of, use pen. Yes, that's right. So I thought that was pretty good. Excellent. So who's responsible for strategy? I think that's where we're heading. Well, I'll break it into two parts. What's the board responsible for? Uh, the board's responsible for divine, desi- de- uh, defining sorry, the vision and the values of the organisation. They are the ones that, in conjunction with management, but what is the vision? Where are we going? And what are the values we hold dear to guide us on this strategic road that we're about to embark on? The next thing is that uh, a board needs to agree on strategic intent. Strategic intent, what is the big purpose that we're trying to achieve for this organisation? There's a lovely quotation by a French writer called Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and he, he says, if you, want to, if you want to build a boat, don't organise people into work parties or tell them how to collect wood. Just look for the endless immensity and get them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And I use that often in board environment. What's the big picture for this organ? What's the intent? What's the endless immensity of the sea for your organisation? Once you've worked that out, what are the best options for getting there? So you do some scenarios or you look at we could do it this way, this way or this way, option A, B or C, and work out the best way of going forward. Then once the plan has been prepared, the board's role is to sign off on it. You've got to, they've got to approve the plan. Because uh, the board is legally liable for strategy, so that's why they have to approve it. And then after the plan has been implemented, the board's role then is to monitor performance and to review and adjust as things go along. So there needs to be regular monitoring of strategy. On the boards that I'm on, I try to look at a key strategic objective every board meeting so that management is reporting to us on how well the strategy is going. If you leave it for six months, it's often too late to correct. And so regular reporting back to the board, if you've got five or six key strategic objectives and you have a meeting every month, then they should be looked at twice a year. If it's a bi-monthly meeting, at least they all get looked at at least once a year. Management, what's management's role? Management is uh, needs to help the board in developing the plan. Now, this will really depend on the size, but if you've got competent people, they can help to develop the plan and bring it back to the board for approval. In very small organisations, that doesn't work. The board has to be intimately involved in developing the plan as well. The management also uh, has the responsibility for implementing the strategy. If the board is only there for one or two uh, or a few hours every month, so the implementation of it rests with management. They report back to the board and they implement any refinements or any adjustments that the board agrees to. So that's the two hard and fast sort of areas. And overall responsibility for the board and making sure that it's working is, uh, is their responsibility. Management's role is to implement, report back and implement any refinements that the board makes. And as I said, in very small not-for-profits with few or no staff, these responsibilities tend to to merge a little bit because quite often the board has to do a lot of the things that I've defined 
there for management because they don't have the, the size or the capacity within the staff to do it. To find your local grower group, head to the Grower Group Alliance website, gga.org.au. While you're there, subscribe to the GGA newsletter and be sure to stay up to date with the activities and opportunities from the 60-plus groups around WA that make up the vibrant and diverse Grower Group Alliance network. So looking at uh, strategy in particular, what, what would be the key ingredients of a successful strategy? Well, let me just say the first thing is designing strategy should never be just a boring experience, okay? It's, uh, and that's a lot of people say, oh, we've got another strategic planning day and they sort of come along reluctantly to it because they, they find it, uh, it's not an exciting experience. It, you've got to make it an innovative and exciting experience. Nor should the strategic plan itself be a boring document. It should be something that creates or opens up opportunities and possibilities uh, that should be exciting for the board to implement. When I facilitate strategic planning sessions or days for people, I love it when I'm leaving and people say, I can't wait to get started. Exactly. You know, that means that, that we've hit we've hit the yep. right, right sort of tone here. People say, this is great, you know, why... I just want to get into this and get started. Or I talk to people a few months later saying, we've already implemented some of that stuff or we're halfway through it. And so people have actually been motivated to do something. I think that's the real test of it. So the the ingredients that I would say, first of all, it's got to inspire change and action. It's got to make people feel like we've got to do stuff differently. We've got to, we've got to become far more visionary in what we're doing and Let's get on and get it done. Let's get some early wins, those sorts of things. that are. The next thing is it has to be communicated at all levels. So it's not the board strategy, it's, it's everyone's strategy. If you've got a bigger organisation, then everybody from your receptionist to whoever it is, your field, field officers, everyone has to, be, has to know what the strategy is and what role they have to play in it. So communication of the strategy it's not just a boardroom document. It's something that everybody needs to know what part they have to play. And have that some way, ownership of it. Ownership, correct. There needs to be a clear process. So you need to set aside time, whether you bring in an external facilitator, that, and I would recommend that if you could find somebody, uh, even for small not-for-profits, try and get a grant or something to get a facilitator to help you do the job. Because if you try and do it internally, you tend to miss things. And a facilitator who's competent, will open up possibilities and ask questions that will lead to in ultimately to a better plan. The next thing is everything's got to be on the table. There's no holding back. This is a time for creative thinking, not just trotting out a whole lot of operational objectives. It's the left brain, right brain all functioning on this stuff and making sure there's no holding back. It's got to be responsive to change. We mentioned that earlier that uh, bon Jovi has got it right in that case. Do it in pencil, but make sure you are capable of making a change. If a strategy is not working and there's a reason why it's not working, then uh, look at it and say, were we biting off too much here? Is there a better way of doing it? And make the adjustments if it's not going to work. It's no good just saying uh, it's all just cast in stone and we have to keep going with it. It needs to be under constant review. I've mentioned that. Try and bring it something back every board meeting to just review how you're going with your strategic plan. Otherwise, it'll just get stuck in a cupboard and dusted off a month before the next strategic planning meeting. Uh, and I've seen that happen way too often. 
The next thing is e- innovation and creativity are essential. What's what's a new and different? Is there a creative way of doing this? I remember one of the earlier sessions uh, uh, where you, you asked the question, uh, what do our members need? Uh, it could be a question you could ask. But a question you might ask, say, under this heading is, how can we really wow our members? What's something that's going to really blow their socks off? So look for creative ways of being able to do stuff because that will actually drive the the creative sort of uh, juices in the place and get everybody moving. And then finally, really critical, there has to be a strict alignment between board and management. You can't have management implementing something that the board really didn't approve or you can't have the the board sort of uh, trying to insist on things that it hasn't asked management to do. So that alignment on strategic intent and strategic action has to be very strong. Yeah, so everything continually goes back, traces back to the strategy, what have we agreed that we're setting out to do Yes, and um, making sure that as you're executing, it's tying back to that. Yep. And in terms of reviewing this strategic plan, like how often would you recommend that gets done? I like to see it monthly, but at least every couple of months. You review parts of it. You don't review the whole thing. In terms of, say, rewriting it, oh, no, the intent it, to rewrite every the Every 12 months, because oh, if wow. you're achieving what yep. you should be doing, yep. look, your vision mightn't change, your values probably won't change, but the key strategic objectives, these are the things that you've set yourself to do over the next 12 months to achieve or to get on the way to achieving your vision. Your vision might be a three-year vision, yeah. but in the next 12 months, what do we need to do to get ourselves on that path? Okay. And there might be four or five. Don't go to too many because if you have ten, you won't do it. Yep. But have four or five of them. And then when you come to reviewing it in 12 months' time, how did we go with these four? There will be the key strategic objectives and a lot of sub-strategies underneath that. How do we go with sub with key strategic objective one, which was to increase membership, say, or, or it was to improve the financial position by having a 10% increase in profit or whatever it might be, and then work out how you've gone over the year. If you haven't fulfilled one of them, you may have to put it back in the next year to do, but hopefully you'll come up with some new key strategic objectives to achieve the overall vision and the goals that you've set. And things things take time to implement as well. Yes. Um, so a three or a five-year strategic plan would be one of the bigger vision sort of type one, and then you're talking about yeah. – as you're going and you might need to adjust things in the shorter cycles, yes, you can adjust that. Yeah, a three, I, five years is a bit tough these days. There's so much happens in the world these days. It's We live in an instant world in many ways. Three years is about as far as I would go with most not-for-profits. But you then, your key strategic objectives are going to be of a shorter time frame. Yeah. And they're the ones that you work on in between, to get to your three-year uh, vision uh, and hopefully you will keep adjusting uh, each year or maybe even adjusting within the year if something's not, not quite working. And I suppose also that time frame on those bigger picture ones depends on the maturity, the life cycle of where the sure. organisation is at. So for a group that's just out the gates, just starting, um, you know, sort of having that big pi- picture vision in the distance in five years' time, this is – Yes. what our goal would be to look like and, and delivering and functioning. And so you might have those distant goals of the five-year, um, yes. but then tackling it as things change, you know, in those shorter cycles. Yeah, your, shorter, your, your key strategic objectives are likely to be more compliance-driven where people are talking about getting the processes and procedures in place and so on. 
Excellent. So why do why do so many organisations fail to deliver on strategy? Well, worldwide, most organisations fail to deliver fully on strategy. In fact, only 10% achieve their strategic objectives. This is some of the wow. Harvard and other places have done research. Even the Fortune 500 companies, which are the top companies in the US, only 63% of them achieve their financial objectives. So the failure to implement is alive and well, and, and people need to be conscious of that. So you may have a very professional strategic plan, but you never get the full benefit of it if you don't implement it. So it stands to reason that you've got to focus very much on having a process in place at the boardroom table for monitoring this and adjusting as you go along. The key elements, I think, for failure to implement, or some of the key elements, the first one is culture. If the culture is wrong, strategy never seems to work. If there's a problem of culture between the board and staff or the culture is just not a healthy one, very hard for people to get out and get really excited about strategy. I heard the most fantastic quote at the start of this year and it said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's right. That's 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 a, that's one that's thrown around a bit and it's a good one. So and it means just that. Yeah, uh, you can culture. have all the aspirations that yes. you want with your strategy, but if your culture is not cooperating yes. to deliver those on those yep. strategies, it's going to eat it for breakfast. Yep. Mm. So culture, number one. Second is resources. It's no good giving the executive officer and the staff this wonderful visionary strategy with all these high-flown sort of objectives if they haven't got the human, financial or other resources to do it. So the CEO has to come back or the EO has got to come back and say, I need more resources if you want me to do that. There needs to be a check and balance there. And the final one is structures. It's strange, but structure we often get wrong. If we come up with a new, bright, innovative strategy that's going to take us in a new direction, don't try and squeeze it into an old structure. What you've got to do is restructure your organisation to set it up for success. And I think that's really important. And I think the other thing too that you should strive to achieve is try and get some early wins so that, look, you are achieving things and you are getting stuff done. Now, some of the reasons for failure of strategy is some people just have a plan for plans. Say, oh, you were, we did a strategic plan because we went for a government grant and they needed one. But it's just a document uh, that they've prepared. It has no ownership within the organisation. The other reason that sometimes people don't understand the operating environment that they work in, you know, they don't have a full comprehension of who's who else is in there, who else is working in this space, what are the critical issues in our operating environment, what, what, what really needs to be done. The other one can be partial commitment by the board, the board sets and forgets, or the staff haven't got a board that's on their case all the time about how we're going with our strategic plan. So partial commitment can lead to failure. Not having the right people involved, uh, who's been charged with executing, is management, have you got the right people there to actually implement this strategy that may be quite brilliant, but you've got to have the right people to do it. The most common one, writing the plan and putting it on the shelf and then dusting it off next year before the next strategic planning day. I've seen that and I've actually, I'd have to admit way back, probably that probably described uh, one of the organisations I was with. Unwillingness or inability to implement change, people are fearful of change. Having the wrong people in leadership positions can be another cause of failure. Ignoring the, uh, the reality, the facts and the assumptions that have been drawn from this strategic plan are just ploughing on without actually stopping and 
and testing it. What is really working? What do we need to do? What are the assumptions this is all based on? Uh, no accountability or follow-through, which is sort of linked to some of the others. And unrealistic goals or lack of focus on the resources and the, the sort of things that we need to do to make it work. So that's some of the reasons why things fail. But it is pretty sad, isn't it, when you think that so few organisations in the world actually get to fully execute on their Definitely. strategies. It reminds me of the stats on the um, workplace engagement. <laughs> yes, it is a bit. Yeah, it sort of links in, doesn't it, uh, to a certain extent. And maybe those two are linked Yeah, in an interesting way. Yeah. So this uh, strategic plan needs to be a living, breathing, working document, not something that's archived. Correct, and, yes. And, and it shouldn't be too long. One-page strategic plans are all you need. Uh, there's plenty of formulas for those. Uh, but try and get it onto one page. Uh, having a 20-page document doesn't make it any better. That's a recipe for having it put on a shelf and never that, referred that, that's to. That's correct. Or not being read again yeah. by the board. But if you've got a one-pager, you can have it on A3 if you want to. Yeah. And you can have it in the board pack every month yep. uh, so that it's uh, front of mind. But a 20-page document sitting nicely on the shelf in the EO's office is not never going to get you there. Owned and controlled by around 3,800 WA grain growing businesses, CBH Group is proud to be actively involved with and supportive of the communities we operate in. We do this through our Community Investment Fund, and a large part of this fund is committed to building leadership capacity in our regional communities. We support and deliver programs that build strength, resilience, knowledge, and skills for future industry leaders to work towards a sustainable and profitable grain growing industry. For more info, head to cbh.com.au forward slash scholarships. Well, let's move on to risk. Um, what are the different responsibilities of the board and management for risk? Uh, well, overall, the board sets the parameters for risk. So they've got to look at, and we'll, we'll cover off some of the things that they do in a moment, and they've got to have oversight of risk by monitoring all reports and feedback that comes back to them from the executive officer and management. Uh, normally boards will have an audit and risk committee of the board that will have responsibilities for managing risk through the organisation. Uh, management, a bit like strategy, manages the risk on a day-to-day -day basis. It prepares risk documents, uh, a risk register, a risk framework and reports back to the board directly or through an audit and risk committee. So risk management's all about the cultures, processes, the structures that are directed towards taking advantage of potential opportunities uh, while managing potential adverse situations or consequences. So risk is about opportunity. A lot of people think risk is the dark side of strategy. It's actually, I've probably made more money for organisations by proper analysis of risk than I ever have probably with strategy. It's interesting, isn't it? For sure. So one of the first things that the board has to decide is what is the risk appetite? In other words, how much risk are they prepared to take? And this might be, uh, are we going to insure for this? Do we need to have reserves? And if so, at what level? What are the financial risks that we how far are we prepared to go of borrowings, for example, to achieve things? Um, what's our reliance on funding? Are we over-reliant? Should we never be more than 50% reliant, say, on government or sponsorship money to, to keep our organisations going? So those sort of that risk appetite, understanding how far you're prepared to go and sharing that with management is quite important. But all organisations have to take risks to create value. 
The question's how much, <laughs> what type of risk they should take. And so risk appetite becomes a mutual understanding between management and the board in relation to the drivers of and parameters around opportunity-seeking behaviour. So it's opportunity-seeking behaviour that, that drives you to take risks. And a balanced approach to this sort of value creation uh, means that the organisation must be prepared to take risks provided they're sensible and to, to undertake. The board's ultimate responsibility for the risk management of the organisation uh, and their role is to ensure that whatever frameworks or plans are, are sound and that they oversee how effective those are in being delivered. So that's the broadest thing. So what are the key design elements that you need, say, in setting uh, a risk framework? Well, you've got to identify and include all the risks and we'll talk about how you break them up in a minute. There's got to be a regular review, a bit like strategy again, of risks. You have to determine the significance of the risks and have a plan to minimise the impact. Every risk has an inherent risk, but you, the key for the board and management is to take that inherent risk and reduce it to a much lower residual risk. To give you an example, you might say the inherent risk of swimming in the ocean every morning is that you could get eaten by something. The residual risk is you swim in a pool near the ocean and so you've completely removed the risk. So that's the sort of link between inherent and residual. And you can do this by insurance, by uh, having reporting mechanisms and other things in place to do it. The other thing that uh, the board has to do is to monitor the risk culture of the organisation. Do we have a proper risk culture? Uh, is it consistent with the board's risk appetite and risk priorities? and monitoring the extent to which the organisation's risk management, risk management processes and procedures have been implemented and operating effectively. So I think the final part that I would say about that, risk management issues are now at an all-time high. We've got things like COVID, what's the, mm, how do we manage risks like that, uh, cyber security, global uncertainty. Boards uh, can, can really expect to, con to continue uh, risk management to be an increasingly challenging part of board decision-making. There's a lot at stake with poor risk management practices. The impact will be felt from top to bottom if we don't get it right, uh, and that will impact across the board, across management, across stakeholders, members, and so on. So you've got to take a focused approach to risk, risk management. You've got to be more than just a compliance mechanism, it needs to be an integral part of your culture, your strategy and your day-to-day -day business operation. Uh, and all of the risk management, that boards, risk management challenges that boards face, uh, the greatest challenge is navigating organisational growth while protecting the organisation's assets. So that's the little sort of conundrum there, if you like. How do you manage growth but at the same time protect the assets so that you don't send the organisation into the receivership or insolvency. And today's commercial and economic climate demands that boards now have to step up to the game with a, a very intense focus on risk management. And the sort of environments that I talked about here just a moment ago are driving that. So even in the smallest of settings, you know, a small, small regional community group, somebody needs to be looking at risk and asking the questions, what risks are on the table here yes. um, because one sort of, you know, catastrophic event could, um, you know, derail your organisation yes. altogether and nobody has that intent when they go in and you're 
um, you know, have the, the best of intentions um, executing things. But, yeah, you may just may not even be on the radar. Look, what are we getting into here or doing here or the practices that are going on mm. that, that could be catastrophic? Well, the organisations that uh, and the businesses that, that benefited or thrived the most in, say, COVID were the ones that had a crisis management plan based around their risk. Mm. Um, and, and I think uh, they're the ones that they knew what to do and where to go when they these thought, things happened. They thought about a scenario well, perhaps before it came Well, they, they, if there was a flood or a fire or something in their premises, what would they do? We have to work from home probably yep. or you've got to find alternate way of communicating and so, so on. So COVID was just so, a so pivot COVID, of it. So they just, variation. we're into plan A, let's go, and then there's discussion about to what extent they're going to implement that plan. Mm. And, and there's a whole raft of risk, you know, the finance and all the rest of these things. Uh, it can't be a shock to you if suddenly a government pulls a grant or it changes the terms of a grant. So what are the risks associated with having over-reliance, say, on government funding and that sort of thing? Uh, and do you have a fallback plan? Do you have enough reserves to cover you for three or six months to keep going so you can fight to get the grant back or find another source of funding and so on? We're looking at stuff that's happening with China at the moment in industries in wine and lobsters and so on and barley where uh, the, the risk management for that hasn't been well managed. We've become too reliant on one market. Uh, and I think you know, the, the lobster industry was 97% reliant on Chinese market. Well, the risk appetite in any organisation would, and the risk management of that would never allow that to happen in normal circumstances. So, but we do and that's where things can go wrong. Is your event visible? Attract traffic to your agricultural industry event by featuring it in the GGA statewide events calendar. Circulated fortnightly, the Grower Group Alliance calendar is the most comprehensive calendar for the Western Australian agricultural industry. Featuring your event is free. Head to the Grower Group Alliance webpage to subscribe, ggA.org.au. So finally, um, on the risk, what, what would be some of the key tools and processes for managing risk? Well, the first thing I think you need to do is to identify the areas where, where there is risk in your organisation. Uh, and there normally be four or five of these. Local governments I've seen have had up to 11, but I think for most small not-for-profits or medium-sized not-for-profits, there'll be four or five areas. I call this the risk, the risk spectrum. What are the parts of the of risk that you need to be, or that you need to look at for your organisation, and then you identify those risks under each of those headings that are relevant to your organisation, to each of the categories. So let's just pick a few that I think would be pretty common. The first one is financial risks. So underneath financial risk, what are the half a dozen, ten risks that you uh, that you might have? Is it over over reliance on one source of income, or is it uh, uh, is there a lack of strength in your balance sheet to do things, whatever? Operational risks, um, uh, not being able to deliver on the uh, on particular projects and things. Uh, uh, is there an operational risk there? Look at what are the risks in the operational areas, the things you're doing on a day-to-day basis for your members. What are the operational risks? Strategic risks, not being able to, uh, to be able to, uh, to be, be relevant in terms of your strategic intent with what your the sector or your members want. Uh, that, that's important. Another one that comes up is reputational risk. Uh, what are the things that could happen to your organisation that would damage your 
reputation and how what, what are the things that you need to do to reduce the level of risk in that area. And that, that one is really important for regional areas because once an organisation has lost its reputation, you won't have volunteers stepping forward to That's right. engage. Yeah, they always say that the most important people, the things we have are our people. I always say it's your reputation because mm. of the bad, if your reputation is, 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 is not uh, a good one, then people are not going to come and work for you or be involved with you anyway. The other areas that you can have is a technological risk. How are you set up for cybersecurity? How current and relevant is your software and IT systems you're using? Organisational risk, uh, it, what's the structure that you've got? Is it right? Have you got the right skills on the board? And the other one can be regulatory or compliance risk. Are you meeting all your regulatory and compliance things with the tax office, with the regulator, whether it's a uh, you know as a company limited by guarantee or as a not-for-profit. The risk documents that that you need then to, uh, having decided, you might come up with, say, 20 or 30 risks. So you then have to look, you, you, the documents that you need to back all this up, you need some sort of risk appetite statement to say, we're not prepared to accept more than 50% funding from any source, etc., or even less than that maybe. Uh, defines the uh, how much risk you're prepared to accept. The risk framework, this... this uh, this looks at all the processes, uh, it identifies and, and monitors risk as you're going through. A risk register, that's the list of all the risks in one place. And what I like to see is what's the inherent risk for that and what's the residual risk alongside it. Normally in a traffic-like signal, which is either red, amber or green as to whether it's it needs to be looked at. Uh, a risk treatment schedule, so you take those risks on the risk register and you, you, each one of them you say, well, to, to reduce the risk, we need to do this. And that's all explained in the risk uh, treatment plan. And then sometimes you might even have a risk action plan. If you've got a particular event or something you're running, you might design a particular risk action plan just to deal with that particular event. So I think just as, as, as some checks for you, how would you know if you've got all the appropriate systems in place? You need to just make sure that you're looking at that. How do you know if it's working or is effective? This is the board's role to make sure in checking with management. How would you know if things start to go wrong? You don't want to read it on the front page of the paper. So do you have critical incidents reporting? For example, in the transport company I chair, any accident uh, with one of the trucks of any, any nature gets reported to the board so we know exactly what's going on. Or there may be other things that you decide as critical incidents that have to come immediately to the board. Uh, how do you know about the near misses? That's the other thing that you, you need to have reporting systems. Who reports to the board and how is it done? Is it done through the Audit and Risk Committee? Is it done direct by management? So they're the sort of... Uh, you need to collect data and information and that's got to be fed up to the board so that they can make decisions. Excellent. So... Um that's a whole lot there on um, the, the board's role in strategy and risk. And before we move away from that completely, I've got a great question from the network here to, um, to ask. And it would be, how do executive officers ensure that sufficient time is spent on strategy and planning when their boards are community people with other priorities? Ah, yes. Well, the first thing, uh, one of the commitments has to be in addition to attending the normal you know, monthly or bi-monthly board meetings 
any director coming on board needs to know there will be at least a day set aside once a year for strategic planning. Uh, and that day has to be forecast well in advance, so you really need to have all directors there when that is done. So um, you've got to set the time aside to do it. Uh, I would always encourage, as I said earlier, to have an external person come in to run the, the program. Uh, I've tried to do it when I was a CEO in the past to run the, the uh, a strategy day or a risk day, uh, but the strategy day in particular. And it, what I found was that I took myself out of the discussion and, uh, and I was probably a key element in it being the CEO, knowing what was going on at board level and at staff level, that by being the facilitator... I spent the whole day trying to coordinate things rather than actually being a contributor. So it's a good idea to get someone from outside. But choose wisely because there are people out there that don't do a good job. So check around to find that the person you're getting to facilitate the day has a strong uh, reputation in this area and check with other... If you're going to get a facilitator, ask them to give you the names of other places they've been and things like that. So do your checks because a day with a poor facilitator can be a very frustrating experience. And that's what caused me to actually start doing them myself. But I, I think that was uh, the wrong decision now that I look back on it. Strategy's got to be aspirational and exciting. So we've got to, people have got to want to come along and, and hold it away from your premises. Do it somewhere that's a bit different, uh, somewhere that you can make a, uh, a good day of it. I've even done weekends with boards um, where we've gone away for we can afford it to, to, to a retreat or somewhere where the whole thing becomes a, a great learning experience with staff and board working together. Put people in the right state because you go yes. somewhere specific yes. out of their normal environment and, and exactly. get their minds focused. And yep, yeah. And the other one is uh, the time. You just have to look at something every board meeting. Just bring something back to review your strategy every board meeting. Uh, and that way um, I think you're uh, – Executive officers will find that the time does get made for strategy and the board should be able to monitor it much more effectively that way. So I suppose also, I mean, looking at this, this situation of people being time poor comes up all the time and, um, and then unfortunately key, key elements in the functionality of a, of a group get um, sort of left behind. But I suppose anybody sort of looking to take on a position, it would be really helpful if up front they had a bit of a map of, you know, the year, what their involvement would, would look like, how many hours a month the commitment is and how many months that would go for so that before people even, you know, make that commitment to join a committee, they know what they're getting into and they can engage in all these really vital elements of running your organisation. Well, well, every organisation should have a board calendar and that should include... Uh, committee dates on there, board meeting dates, uh, strategic planning dates. I've even seen board calendars on there where they've got the PAYG date where you know tax obligations have to be met and all those sorts of things. So, uh, But put as much information on there so that you're going to guarantee you're going to get a quorum at meetings and people will know what the commitment is ahead of them. So when people are doing their board induction, if you've got new people coming, they know what the time commitment is going to be. It gets very clear. Yeah, and uh, even if that was to blow out by, say, 20 or 30%, still you can then make an educated, it's informed guess. It's manageable. Mm. And I think you know, even even to the point of getting these things sent out as a diary 
uh, update in their their outlook or whatever they've got to make sure it's actually something that they've agreed to so that you'll know six months in advance whether you're going to have a quorum next year and you might say, oh, in March next or May next year, oh, we don't have a quorum because it's school holidays. You may have to adjust the date or something. So I think diaries for boards are really critical, but always have time in there for doing some work on strategy. Excellent. Well, so many um, good pieces there on the board's role in strategy and risk. Thanks very much, Peter, for all your insights today. Yes. Well, we probably went a bit over the 15 minutes, but we did cover a day's (laughs) worth of teaching there. So I think we can probably give ourselves a pat on the back for that one. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. We hope you've enjoyed the content in this episode of the Let's Talk Governance podcast. Resources around governance for grower groups, including where to connect with guest expert Peter Fitzpatrick, can be found on the Grower Group Alliance website at gga.org.au. Before we go, one final acknowledgement to our podcast sponsor, the CBH Group, who have been right behind this new way of making governance guidance really accessible to the Grower Group Alliance Network and any other not-for-profit stakeholder groups tuning in.